This is a Federal News Network podcast. A bill from the House Oversight and Reform Committee would fix what members see as holes in the legal protections for whistleblowers. Among other things, it would give whistleblowers who claim retaliation access to jury trials if the Merit Systems Protection Board drags its feet. Here with analysis, whistleblower attorney Deborah D'Agostino. Deborah, good to have you back. Good to be here. And what is wrong with whistleblower protection law as it stands now that this bill seeks to fix? Well, I think that this bill does seek to fix several loopholes in the existing law that became apparent under the Trump administration. And so I think some of what we're seeing now is sort of like what happened after Nixon left office. There's a sort of reflex to fix what we saw going wrong, uh, and that certainly includes with whistleblower protection. Well, what did go wrong? Well, so, for example, one of the things that this bill proposes to do is to clarify that no federal government employee, and that's including the president or vice president of the United States, could retaliate against a federal employee for sharing information with Congress, for example. So I think the existing law that we have today on the books never contemplated that a president or vice president may partake in retaliation But I think as we all saw over the last four years, that did happen, especially with those testifying before Congress. And so it it became apparent that some strengthening of that part of the law was needed. There's also been no Merit Systems Protection Board in place for several years now, and that's also created some problems for whistleblowers in particular. So the current situation is that because there's no board, There are administrative judges at the MSPB hearing whistleblower cases, but the right to appeal further becomes very limited. So one of the most exciting things that I think this bill does is allow whistleblowers facing retaliation to file a claim in U.S. District Court alleging whistleblower retaliation if they don't have an MSPB decision in their hands within 180 days or 240 days for more complex actions. And that's a a huge paradigm shift and I think great news for federal employees. Yeah, I guess it's important to make the distinction here between the agency deciding on the merits of what the whistleblower alleges in blowing the whistle and what happens to the whistleblower as a result of blowing the whistle, the retaliation. That seems to be the end of things that need the protection the most, not the actual raising of issues by whistleblowers. Is that a fair way to put it? Definitely. Those are two very different functions. So oftentimes, offices of inspector generals at agencies are actually investigating the protector disclosures made, are looking into you know, whether there was a violation of law, gross mismanagement or waste, abuse of authority. The other category would be a substantial and specific danger to public health or safety, which also became an issue given COVID. So there are entities established to actually look into the protected disclosures But the protections for those who made the protected disclosures need to be strengthened. And so that's what this bill targets. And there's also another provision, and this is from the summary provided by the committee itself, extending Title V protections to non-career senior executive service employees, public health service officers or applicants, and to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Commissioned Officer Corps. That seems significant by taking it beyond people actually in Title V? Yes, that is certainly significant. I think that there is recognition that these folks doing important work, again, particularly this came to light in handling this pandemic, 
there needs to be stronger protection for these folks. And there's some loopholes in the existing law that leave some of these folks without protection. So this bill certainly aims to close some of those gaps that currently exist. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, where this committee goes. They've come out and they've been pretty aggressive. The past administration was looking to narrow Title V coverage, narrow Title V rights. I anticipate over these next few years we're going to see an expansion of that. Well, I imagine both sides politically would want to have this because they both hope that the whistle will be blown on the other guys. Exactly. All right. Yes, whistleblower protection is something that's always had bipartisan support. Thank goodness. There were actually some laws that came out under the Trump administration to strengthen some whistleblower protections. For example, the law at the VA was designed hypothetically to strengthen whistleblower protections. I think we saw that there were some flaws in that as well, but that was the goal. So, yes, I mean, traditionally, whistleblower protection has certainly had bipartisan support. The champions on the Hill for whistleblower protection are of both parties. So hopefully this bill actually has a good chance of becoming law. We're speaking with attorney Deborah D'Agostino, founding partner of the Federal Practice Group. And in the last couple of years, I guess we have you know some months of the Biden administration, but then in the prior four years of the Trump, what is it you're seeing from your practice standpoint? I don't know that we've seen a drastic change yet in terms of the clients that would come through my firm's door, for example. But there's certainly a very obvious shift from Biden's first days when he rolled back Trump's executive orders that affected federal employees. And just, you know, his first week uh, made a very sort of pro-labor, pro-employee stance. I suspect that's going to be, you know, federal employees will feel that if they aren't feeling that already. There's a difference between pro-union and pro-employee, too. I mean, that distinction, I believe, needs to be maintained also, wouldn't you say? That's definitely true. Certainly the rights collide in many cases. Many federal employees are in unions and have rights through that avenue. They also have rights, for example, through Title V. And so, you know, whistleblowers, for example, right now, if they're facing something like a removal, they may choose to take that to the union, grieve it, go to arbitration. They may choose to go to the MSPB and seek that right. So again, one of the exciting options that this bill would present to federal employees would be the option to go to court, which federal employees right now have under Title VII. So for example, if they're facing race discrimination, gender discrimination, or other forms of discrimination, but federal employee whistleblowers have not had the right to go to court. It's strange because other whistleblowers, corporate whistleblowers, for example, do have more rights than federal employee whistleblowers. Federal employees are often in a very good position to be blowing the whistle on things that really matter to the public. And so anyone should have the right to a jury trial, should have all that comes with the right to seek a jury trial. It really should be federal employees. So hopefully that change does come. And I think that that will really shift the ground in terms of how agencies even contemplate taking a retaliatory action. I suspect that even the threat of a jury trial will make some officials stop before they do something that that either is retaliatory or could be perceived as retaliatory. So therefore, if this bill should become law, and it's got a long way to go yet because there's something called the Senate and so forth, but there's been good support for whistleblowers there too, you would expect then that more whistleblowing cases might come to bear because of a lack of fear or lessened fear of retaliation? Well, 
I think that will be interesting to see. I do feel like there was a hush under this past administration, and I think there was a chilling effect after there was some very apparent retaliatory moves made at some of the highest levels of government. And I mean, you know, I certainly don't have statistics at the ready, but it was very much the feeling that that retaliation was causing a hush and, and causing whistleblowers to second guess whether or not they should blow the whistle, which which isn't good for any of us, right? Not good for taxpayers. I mean, if the whistle needs to be blown, hopefully it's getting blown. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully whistleblowers, if they know they have the right to go to court, the right to be before a jury, will feel emboldened to come forward if they are seeing things that, you know, my goodness, should be brought to the attention of some official or, or an office of inspector general that can look into it. Attorney Deborah D'Agostino is founding partner of the Federal Practice Group. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.